So I'm a church, Tulsi and 114 others um, at all of our campuses uh, last week made a public profession of their faith through baptism. Many of them were first time confessions of faith. Some of them were simply following a step that God had told them to take. Uh, we've had many more join this weekend. Could we one more time at all of our campuses put our hands together to thank God for what he is allowing us to see. These are always my very favorite weekends that we have. I usually like to try to, if I can, to stick around to the very end because sometimes the best stories occur at the very end. Uh, last weekend, we were literally here at Briar Creek turning off the lights, shutting down the doors, shutting down the pool when a girl showed up at the back and her she just, eyes were puffy and she had tears uh, streaming down her cheeks. And she says, is it too late? I said, what do you mean? She said, I tried to get in my car. I tried to drive away and I couldn't. I just argued with God for a while and I know that um, I need to trust Christ and be saved, and I need to get baptized, is it too late? And I said, it's not too late. And so we turned the lights back on and we baptized her. And uh, amazing. Last weekend, I saw people who've been fighting this for a long time finally cross the line of faith, uh, led by some of you who walked with them through that process. I saw husbands whose wives have been faithfully bringing them and praying for them, and uh, I say nagging them in Jesus' name, uh, finally take that step of faith. Uh, that number 115 does not include 23 professions of faith that we had last weekend at the women's prison campus. Uh, by the way, uh, could you put your hands together and thank God for our brothers and sisters in prison. Summit Church, I hope this never gets old to you. It never gets old to God. It never gets old to his angels. And so I certainly hope it never gets old to his church as we see people brought from death to life. Today, we're going to give you one more chance for you to act on this. This is for those of you who actually got in the car last weekend and you managed to drive away and uh, you have regretted it the entire week. And you've been like, if they just gave me one more chance to do that, well, today is your day. And we're going to give you uh, that chance to act on that. Or maybe you weren't here last week and you know you need to take that step. Step, whatever it is, at every service, at every campus, at the end of the message, we're going to offer you a chance to do that. Uh, maybe you say, well, I got baptized when I was a baby. And like we always say here, that's fantastic. We um, celebrate the faith that your parents showed when they had you baptized as a baby. But baptism in the New Testament is a public profession of your faith. And so what you want to do is ratify that decision that your parents made for you so long ago um, by choosing to be baptized as a profession of your faith. And so as always, we have got everything that that you will need changes of clothes. We got a baptism t-shirt, which is yours to keep if you choose. We have deodorant, we have stuff for your hair. There literally is not anything that you could think of that we haven't already thought of. I used to say that in the first year or two, people thought of stuff and they came and they told me, but we've collected it all. We've got a virtual Walmart back there. So you just come and everything we need, you'll have. Galatians chapter three. If you got your Bibles this weekend, Galatians chapter three, we're in week number five of a series that we're going through the book of Galatians, uh, which Martin Luther said was like his wife. Uh, and uh, Martin Luther, the one that started the Reformation that we are celebrating the 500th anniversary of. Um, we left off last week, right in the middle of Galatians three, which is where we're gonna pick up today. When, when you're reading through the book of Galatians, as I hope many of you are, I've read through it probably a dozen times now as we've been going through this series. And uh, when you're reading through it, you can't help but ask yourself the question, where where did Paul get this hatred of the law? 
I mean, I was talking to a, a pastor friend the other day who told me that sometimes he notices people in his church who grow up in one culture, and then they, they get exposed to another culture when they, you know, get in their college years, and they start to see some of the deficiencies in their home culture, which we all have deficiencies in our home culture. He said, and it actually becomes, they develop a very unhealthily critical spirit back toward their home culture, almost a self-loathing kind of thing, as if nothing that their home culture did was right or could ever get anything right. Well, you ask, is that what's going on with Paul? I mean, Paul had grown up on the law, but in Galatians, Paul attacks the law mercilessly. He's going to say things like in chapter 3, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. The law is not even based on faith. No, the law is based on, on your own ability to do things, and it tells you that the one who does these things will live by them. In chapter 5, Paul is going to completely take the gloves off and, and, and say this about those who teach adherence to the law as a, a means of getting close to God. I wish those who still preach circumcision might also let themselves be mutilated. Some of your translations say emasculated there, which is a much closer translation to what Paul was saying. This is honestly one of the most jarring statements in the Bible. Paul is literally saying, I would like to see those who insist on circumcision let the knife drift up a little farther so that they can't reproduce their heresy anymore. And some of you thought I was a little blunt. Uh, when somebody says to me, you're a little blunt, you're a little harsh. I'm like, I never said that. And this is Paul speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Paul has made the case in the first half of chapter three, pretty convincingly, that the law plays absolutely no part in getting us declared righteous in God's sight, nor can obedience to the law produce the first tremor of spiritual life in our hearts. His biblical proof for this is, is Abraham. Abraham, who in his old age believed God's promise that he would have a child, even for, though for nearly a century, he and his wife had tried to have kids but could not. Yet when Abraham believed God's promises, promise, Genesis 15 tells us that two things happened to Abraham. Number one, he was judicially counted righteous before God, which meant that, you know, Genesis 15, 6, he was declared righteous. His faith was credited to him as righteousness. The second thing that happened to him was new life flooded into his physically dead body so that he could reproduce. Paul asks, was this owing? to any inner strength in Abraham? Was it a new technique that he learned or a new mental mindset that he had adopted that released this power in him? No, of course not. The righteousness and power, Paul points out, were gifts from God. Abraham obtained them simply by believing the promise. In the same way, Paul says, we, you and me, are declared judicially righteous when we believe God's promise that Jesus died for our sin and rose again, and we receive spiritual power through the Holy Spirit as we continue to believe that. By the way, it is amazing how unified the Bible is in what it teaches about salvation. From cover to cover in the Bible, there is one way of salvation, and that is through faith in God's promise. In the Old Testament, they were saved by believing that God would keep his promise, that Jesus would come. In the New Testament, we're saved by looking backwards and saying God did keep his promise, and Jesus came and died for our sin. And in both Testaments, when you put faith in what God said he would do, righteousness is credited to your account, and spiritual life is released into your heart. Well, if all that is true, then here is the very natural question. Is there no purpose then for the law? Or here's how the apostle Paul would say in verse 21, is the law therefore contrary? Does it somehow go against God's promises? After all, didn't the law originally come from God? Didn't he inspire the law? 
Don't we still use laws in our society today to good effect? I mean, Christian parents, don't we Christian parents use laws with our children? I mean, with my children, I say things like, hey, you will tell the truth. You will do your homework. You will not play in the highway. You will eat your broccoli. You will not spread the entire stick of butter onto your bread. And you will do each of these things whether you feel like them or not. Isn't that the law? Is Paul telling us not to use that if we're Christians? Don't we even use law sometimes in church? I mean, think about how often we say things like, well, you should read the Bible and you should pray and you should come to church. Even when you don't feel like it, you should do those things. Or you should tithe. You should give your first fruits to God even when you don't feel like it. You should flee temptation even when you feel like indulging in in those temptations. Those are all statements of law. Is Paul telling us to reject all of that kind of talk? Or, or think about it this way. Say some married man comes up to me after one of our services and he says, Pastor, I was walking through the mall the other day and I saw this really beautiful woman in front of me, not my wife. She was dressed in really skimpy clothing. And Pastor, I knew what I was supposed to think. I knew what a truly righteous heart would think. A truly righteous heart would look at her and say, this woman, while beautiful, is not God's will for me. She is not just some object for my sexual pleasure and honoring my wife and honoring her and honoring the God who saved me are far more satisfying and important to me than indulgence and lust would be. Pastor, I knew that's what I was supposed to be thinking, but that is not what I actually was thinking. My thoughts toward her in that moment were entirely immoral and isn't forcing myself to do what's right. That is turning the other direction and going home to my wife, isn't that relying on the law? Well, I didn't want to be a Galatian heretic, so I acted on my heart's desires, and I got the girl's number, and then I went home and believed the gospel to get God's forgiveness. Now, do you think that I'm going to say that's great work? That's exactly how I was hoping you would understand and apply the book of Galatians. No, of course not, but think about it. Isn't telling this guy to force himself to choose one thing, even though his heart wants something else, isn't that using the law in his life? Is Paul saying that is bad? Well, obviously, no. I will say, however, that the fact that you have that question is a good one, and it shows that you're really starting to understand what Paul is teaching. Paul frequently in his teaching about the gospel has to stop and answer that question. Does it in the middle of the book of Romans too. He's like, no, 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 I'm not really saying that you just go out and sin whenever you want. One of the signs that you're starting to feel the radical implications of the gospel is that you start to ask the question of whether or not Paul is telling you that you can go and do whatever you want. Now, y'all, Paul's got a really good answer for that question. But my point is that if you don't ever find yourself asking the question, you've probably yet to grasp the truly radical things that the gospel is teaching. So here Paul gives his answer, starting in verse 19. Why then was the law given? It was added for the sake of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise was made would come. Is the law therefore contrary to God's promises? Absolutely not. Verse 22, the scripture imprisoned through the law, everything under sin's power, so that the promise might be given on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ to those who believe. The law then, here's your key word, was our guardian. It was our guardian until Christ so that we could be justified by faith. Verse 25, but since that faith has come, we are no longer under a 
guardian, for through faith you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. The key word there is guardian. Some translations will say tutor or schoolmaster. Paul is referring here to a school teacher or a nanny who oversees a child, training them up in the ways of adulthood and making sure they don't kill themselves accidentally before they become adults. Three ways, Paul says, the law is like our guardian, our tutor, our nanny, our school teacher. And these are the three ways, by the way, the ongoing uses of the law in the life of a believer. Okay, three ongoing uses of the law. And by law, I just mean God's commands about what we should and shouldn't do, whether we're talking about Ten Commandments or uh, coming to church and doing your quiet time or something like that. Three ongoing uses of the law in our lives. First, give you three metaphors. First, the law is a curb. It is a curb. Through threats of punishment or consequences, the law keeps our sinful natures in check. We obey sometimes simply because we're scared of the consequences. Forcing ourselves to obey the law does not erase the presence of sin in our hearts because sin consists primarily of corrupt desires, and these are going to be present in us whether we act on our impulses or not. But obeying the law can keep us from the further damage that is caused by acting on sin. To go back to our illustration of the man in the mall, it is true that the root of this man's sin is in his heart. And that is not going to be cured by the fact that he doesn't um, follow the impulse to, to flirt with this girl. But by obeying God's laws not to engage in adultery, even when he doesn't feel like obeying that law, he keeps himself from the further damage that sin would bring like destroying his wife and family, like dishonoring this girl, like corrupting his own heart or displeasing God. So the law says to him, you may feel like committing adultery, but this is what it's going to do to your marriage and your family and your heart and the glory of God. So this man obeys the law even when he doesn't feel like it because it curbs the effects, the harmful effects of his sin. So that's the first thing it does is it curbs the effects of sin. Number two, the law serves for us as a mirror. The law reveals to us, as if looking in a mirror, how sinful our heart actually is. Because the law reveals to us what a righteous heart is supposed to look like. And when we look into the law, we see what our heart does look like, and it leads us to despair because we see how twisted our heart is and how desperate we are for a Savior. Commandment number nine, for example, thou shalt not lie tells me that I'm supposed to love honesty so much that I'm never even tempted to lie, even when a little lie is going to get me an advantage or it's going to get me out of a bad situation. Commandment number seven, do not commit adultery, shows me that I'm supposed to love purity so much that any sexual desire I have for somebody else besides my spouse gets outweighed by my love of purity and doing things God's way. Commandment number six, thou shalt not kill, shows me that I am supposed to be so aware of God's kindness to me that I wouldn't dare think a harmful thought about something happening to somebody else. Commandment number 10, you shall not covet, shows me that I'm supposed to be so satisfied with God and so trusting of his plan for me that I don't get jealous even when somebody else gets something that I wanted. That's what I'm supposed to be like. But when I look into the mirror of those laws, I say I'm in deep trouble. Because those are the opposite of what my heart usually feels in those moments. And merely forcing my heart to do the right thing is not going to change my heart. I've heard the law compared in this regard to a thermometer rather than a thermostat. A thermometer tells you the temperature. It can't change the temperature. You don't get sick and put a thermometer in and say, just hold it in your mouth and you'll get better. It just tells you what the temperature is. A thermostat can change the temperature. The law is the thermometer that shows you how sin sick your heart really is. The gospel is going to be the thermostat that's going to change your spiritual temperature. When you force yourself to obey the law, when you force yourself to do it even when you don't want to do it, then a couple things happen. One, you really start to resent 
the law and your obedience becomes very short-lived. And we've described it here before, like trying to bend a a steel bar. There are certain kinds of steel that, you know, if you really were strong and you put a lot of pressure on them, you might be able to get them to bend just a little bit. But the moment you take your hands off of it, it's going to go back to its original shape. Or if you were strong enough and you were able to put so much pressure on it, you would just get it to where it snapped in the middle. And Paul is going to say that's what the effect of the law is on the heart. Either when the pressures of the law are there, you conform, but the moment those pressures are gone, you go back to the original state of your heart. Here's how you hear that. Um, You've got a high school student who, when they're around the right influences, mom and dad or the law, they're acting one way, but when they're with their friends and their parents aren't around, they act a different way because their heart's in this shape up here. Or we put so much pressure on them to conform. You gotta do this, you gotta be this, you gotta talk about Jesus, that when they finally leave high school and go to college, they feel like I am free. I finally out from underneath that tyranny. I hated my parents' rules and I hated always being drugged to church. And now I just throw off all my faith because I have snapped spiritually. Paul says that's what happens when we just try to change through the law. We end up resenting God. It's like Martin Luther talked about the law. He said the law made me hate God. The more the law showed me what I should be, the more I realized how much I wasn't. Luther talked about the dilemma of the great commandment. I mean, the great commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. He said the dilemma of that is God is commanding us something that by definition can't really be commanded. Because if you don't love something, then no command's going to make you love it. I mean, I hate mayonnaise. I think mayonnaise is the nectar of the devil. I don't think it's going to be in heaven. I think God, as, a, as, a, as just early sanctification for me, has gotten rid of that taste out of my mouth. It's just disgusting. Thank you. Um, so I hate it. Right? You, if you command me to eat manna, if you're strong enough, you might force me to eat it, but no command of yours is going to make me love it. Right? The flip side of that is also true. If I already love something, I don't need to be commanded to, to love it or to do it. You never have to command me to eat a steak or take a nap or kiss my wife or play with my kids. I love those things, so I don't need to be commanded to do them. And Luther said that's the dilemma is the law is commanding us to do something that if we don't love it, we can't be commanded to love it. And if we do love it, we don't need to be commanded. He said, so when you think about it, look at this statement, what the law requires is freedom from the law. When you've summarized the law as love God and love other people, and then you'll obey all the commandments, what it's really requiring is to be free from the law. And when I realize that, I realize how much trouble I'm in because I don't love God and I don't love others like I love myself. And I can't change my heart through simple obedience. What the law does as the mirror is it drives me to see how desperate my heart is, how sin sick it is, and how badly I need a savior. Didn't know what Paul said, verse 19, why was the law given? It was our guardian, it was a tutor that brought me to Christ so that I could be justified by faith, so that the change that I'm looking for would not come from me, it would come from what he did and his life-giving resurrection with power would flow into me as I trusted in his work and not my own. So it's a mirror, it's a curb that keeps us from the further damage of sin, it's a mirror that shows us our need of a savior. Thirdly, it is, Paul says, a guide. It is a guide or a compass or a map. After being saved, the law shows us the best way that we can please the God that we now love. You see, the law perfectly reveals God's character to us, and it shows us what a life that is pleasing to God would look like. Illustration I used for this one last week was that the law is like railroad tracks. Railroad tracks can point you the direction that you're supposed to go, but the railroad tracks are powerless to move the freight along the tracks. Right? You need an engine to move the freight along the tracks. The gospel is the locomotive that moves the freight of your obedience along the tracks. 
Even after you've got the engine, however, the, the tracks, the law can be helpful in showing us the direction that we need to go. You could say in that sense, by the way, that the law drives us to grace, but then our experience of grace drives us back to the law. The law drives us in desperation to grace, but then our experience of grace drives us in devotion and love back to the law. Having been justified by grace, we now desire to please the God who has saved us, and we learn how to do that from the law. So let's go back to our married guy in the mall for a minute and try to pull all this together. What this guy should say in that moment when he is feeling those immoral, thinking those immoral thoughts about this woman is he should say this in his heart. God, I know that I should love faithfulness and purity more than I desire this woman, but I don't right now. And that desire reveals how sin sick my heart actually is. Now, I'm not going to act on this impulse as I know. That it would harm my marriage, it would harm this woman, it would further entrench sin's power in my own heart, and it would dishonor you. But I realize, God, that my forced obedience here is not going to heal the distorted desires of my heart. Only you can do that through the power of the resurrection, and that power flows only from the finished work of Christ. Therefore, while I force myself to do the thing that I don't want to do right now, I am looking to you, trusting in the power of the Spirit on the basis of the finished work of Christ for you to change my heart so that one day I love purity more than I desire lust. That's what you should say. You're like, well, I'm never going to remember all that when I'm in the mall. Yeah, I understand, okay. In other words, just say this. God, I'm going to choose to do the right thing, but I really want to do the wrong thing. Please, because of Jesus, fix my broken wanter. That's basically what you're saying. And by the way, I'll put those up both on my blog if you want the extended version or the shortened version. Those are the three ongoing uses of the law for the Christian. You see, it's a curb. It's a curb that keeps us from the further damage that sin would cause in our lives. It is a mirror that shows us how sinful we are and how desperate we are for a Savior, brings us to call out to Christ for mercy. And then it is a guide showing us how to act in order to please the God who has saved us and how to bless others but the power to actually change the heart. See, this is the key. The power to actually change the heart, the power to produce righteous desires in the heart is only found in the finished work of Christ. And only that, that can only come by the power of the resurrection that is released only by faith in God's promise, not by obedience or a resolution that you're gonna do better. In chapter four, Paul continues his thought, thought excuse me. Chapter four, verse one, he says, now I say that as long as the heir is a child, it differs in no way from a slave though he's the owner of everything. In other words, you got a kid and a slave growing up in a house and one owns everything and one doesn't, but for the time being, when they're immature as kids, they're both under the law, um, even though one's in charge. Instead, he's under guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were in slavery under the elements of the world. In other words, before we came to maturity in Christ, that is, before righteous desires are fully formed in our hearts, we need the law. Sometimes we have to be told what to do, and sometimes we got to force ourselves to do the right thing even when we feel otherwise. That time of immaturity, listen to this, included Israel before Jesus came. They were under the Mosaic law. It also includes we as immature Christians when we desire things that we know we should not desire, like the guy in my story or me every single day. But the law was totally insufficient to actually bring about change in our hearts. 
to actually put spiritual life into our hearts. So, verse 4, Paul goes on, when the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. God wanted to transform us into sons who wanted to obey. He did not want us to remain as slaves who were forced to obey, so he redeemed us. Jesus was born under the law so he could live the life that we were supposed to live, the life that loved God and loved others like we were supposed to, and then die the death. We were condemned to die, and in so doing, he bought us out of the orphanage of sin where sin was our mother and Satan was our father, and he adopted us into the household of God. And because you are sons, Paul said, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Daddy, my father, my father. After God cleared our sin debt through Christ, he put Christ, his son's spirit, into you so that you would start to love and trust God just like Jesus did. You see, every child who loves his daddy wants to be like him, right? Abba is the, is the tender Aramaic word for daddy. It's literally what it means, daddy. And every child that loves his daddy wants to be like his daddy. I see this now with my son. My, I have one son who's seven years old. And, and uh, he, if you ask him now, somebody asked him the other day, what do you want to be when you grow up? He said, I either want to be a pastor or a spy. Now... <laughs> I know where he gets the pastor from, I'm not sure about the spy, um, uh, but he, he wants to be a pastor because at least at this stage in his life, he looks up to me and he loves me and he's like, I want to be like my daddy. I want to be like my daddy and I want to be like him when he grows up and obviously that honors me and I don't know if that's what God has called him to do, but he wants to be like his daddy. Sometimes, uh, I think I've told you, when I look into the mirror, um, increasingly as I get older and I'll be brushing my teeth and I look up, suddenly I see my father, Lynn Greer, looking back at me in the mirror. And I think, where did he come from? And that's, but that's okay because I love my dad and I've always wanted to become the man that my daddy is. And so I want to be like him. That happens to us with God, our father, when the spirit of his son comes into our hearts. We're like, I want to be close to my daddy. I want to be like my daddy. I want to please my daddy. I love my daddy. Let me be close to my daddy, let me be like him. Verse 7, see, you are no longer a slave, he says. You are a son, and that makes you free. No longer do we live under a law that forces us to do what you don't want to do. Christ's spirit comes into us and changes our desires so that obeying the law is what we desire to do. Uh, here, here's an illustration I've used before for, to give you a, a picture of this for the law. Uh, some of you love this illustration and some of you hate this illustration. And you're like, oh, it's just too crude. But you know what? If Paul can talk about circumcision the way that he did, I can use this illustration, okay? Uh, I've described it like this before. I'm like, let's say that right before worship started, before the service started, one of our worship leaders from right here got sick and just vomited everywhere on the floor. I know it's gross, but they just vom- and we, it was so close to service time, we didn't have time to clean it up. Now, um, we would not have to, nobody would have to get up here, none of the campus pastors, and would say, now, I'm really serious. It is against the rules of the Summit Church for you to come down here and lick up this vomit. That is a very serious offense. We, take it, we will throw you out of here. We're going to put two big old guards right side by side with baseball bats, and if you come down here and try to lick up this vomit, they're going to throw you out. Nobody needs to hear that, right? Nobody's like, oh, dog, there's my chance. I was going to get some free vomit. Nobody's going to say that. Right, because vomit is disgusting to you, therefore you don't need the law. Now, that would be different if you were a dog. <laughs> if you're a dog, you're like, whoo, warm vomit, half-eaten hot dog, awesome. You know, so you're going to be down here, and the moment that one of the guys with the sticks is not looking, you can be down there licking it out because you're a dog. The dog does need the law. God, listen, God does not want spiritual dogs in heaven 
who only obey God because they're afraid that God will come along with a stick and beat them if they don't. God wants people in heaven who think of sin as disgusting as he thinks sin is, who avoid sin because they hate sin, because they have the heart of the Holy Spirit that finds sin so disgusting that they can't even look at it. That's what God is wanting to produce in you, and the law can't do that no matter how big the guy is with the stick. The gospel changes your heart so that you desire to do what God's law tells you that you should do. In other words, the gospel frees us to obey God. Now, when I say frees you to obey God, to many people in our culture, that sounds totally strange or nonsensical even because our culture celebrates freedom as the ability to throw off all rules and then define your own existence and do whatever you want. This is how the very Supreme Court of the United States defined freedom in a pretty famous ruling in 1992, uh, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, uh, uh, Justice Anthony Kennedy. Here's what he said. Listen to this. The heart of liberty. The essence of liberty is to define one's own concept of existence and the meaning of the universe. What it means to be free is to think I have no purpose and I've just got to figure out what my purpose is. On a more popular level in 2004, Will Smith starred in a movie called I, Robot. I don't know if many of you have seen it, but the basic gist of the movie is that there's this robot named Sonny whose purpose is to stave off a plot to destroy the human race by other robots. Well, after Sonny succeeds in saving the human race, and you're like, you're totally blowing the movie for us. You know what's going to happen because the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air always succeeds at whatever he does. Amen. Um, so after Sonny saves the human race, he tells Will Smith at the end of the movie that he's depressed now because now he doesn't know what to do with himself now that his purpose and being created has been fulfilled. Well, Will Smith, ever the insightful philosopher, tells him, well, Sonny, I guess now you're like the rest of us free to make your own way and free to figure out what your purpose is. See, that's how our culture views freedom. You're free to find and define your own purpose. The Bible would say that is not freedom at all. Imagine a, a fish that develops a psychological disorder. And that psychological disorder makes him think that he wants to hop out of the water and onto dry land. And so the fish does it. He starts flopping around on the dock and he thinks, I'm free. I am free. I'm no longer constrained by that restrictive ocean. He's not going to be free for very long. He's going to be dead because he is designed to be in the water and therefore he will only thrive when he's in the water. You and I are created for God and we will thrive only when we are in right relationship to God and we will find true freedom only when we are living according to the purpose for which we were created. And those by people, by the way, who have walked with God faithfully for many years will tell you from personal experience that that is true. I will tell you, and I often explain this to my kids, having walked with God now for only really a couple of decades, I tell my kids, I say, if I had 10,000 lives to live, I would live every single one of them for Jesus Christ. Because of the joy that comes from knowing him, life is hard, but God is good. And I know that one day when I've been there 10,000 years bright shining as the sun, I'm going to be as energetic and as overjoyed to get up in the morning and serve God as I am today because there's no less days to sing God's praise than when I have first begun. I am created for God, and that's where I found freedom. Verse 8, but in the past, since you didn't know God, you were enslaved to things that by nature are not really God's. In other words, Paul's saying total freedom's a myth because we're not God. We're created to depend on a God, and if we don't depend on God, we're going to depend on something in the place of God. You see, the question is not, are you a worshiper? The question is simply what you are worshiping, because deep down, we know we need security. We know that we know, deep down, we know how fragile we are. We're powerless to stop a meteor from slamming into the earth and killing us all. 
We know that if the sun heats up or cools down by five degrees or 5%, um, then we're all goners. Uh, I read this week an article in the New York Times about super volcanoes uh, that basically said we new discovery um, is that we used to think it took about 500 years for a super volcano to, to activate. Uh, new research has shown it only takes about 20 years. Um, oh, by the way, we also think the one under um, Yellowstone is, uh, is maybe starting to activate. Um, you know, so you should just pay attention to that. And I thought, what am I supposed to do with that article? Right? Like, uh, like what? And now, don't let that, like, don't let it freak you out. Like, you know, it's probably not going to happen. But, uh, but this is probably a really good time to do the baptism call um, right now. Um, but um, it's probably not going to happen. But you know how fragile we are. You know that we need security from somewhere. We know we need something beyond ourselves to be happy. Right? So we identify something that we need to be happy. Maybe that's money or romance or getting to a certain standard of living or popularity or good health. God is supposed to be that thing. And when God is that thing, we experience freedom because we're created for God. But when we choose something besides God to be our primary source of security or happiness, not only are we not fulfilled, we become enslaved to that thing. Again, the question is not if you're a worshiper, it's what you're worshiping. For example, if you depend on money for security and fulfillment and happiness, then you become really obsessed about money and you're worried all the time about getting it or losing it or not having it. You become really stingy. You become a workaholic. If you think romance is what will make you happy, then you become desperate for romance. You depend on it. You become really fearful about being alone. You're just paralyzed by this idea that you're going to grow up single or you're never going to find happy marriage. Or when you get into a relationship, you become codependent. I told you most people approach romance like a drowning man approaches a life preserver. You got a guy drowning in a sea of loneliness and despair and low self-esteem and insignificance. And along by floats a five-foot-two blonde-headed life preserver. What's a drowning man do when he sees a life preserver? He clings to it. And he clings to it and he suffocates the life out of her because he is, look, he is depending on something from her she wasn't designed to give. Matt Dillon, the actor, said he realized that he was a relationship junkie. He needed the new hit of a new romantic relationship every few months to feel alive. And some of you are in that same category. I need that. I don't get this. If I don't have this more, then I'm not really going to feel like a real person. If you need family to be secure and fulfilled, then you become really controlling and possessive of your family. You need your kids to turn out well because your kids turning out well will be a validation of you. And you become really controlling of them in their future because you need them close by and you need them to be doing things that make you proud because your kids, you depend on them for life and security and happiness. If you look to the approval of others to be happy, then you become a slave to other people's opinions. You live and die by what they say about you. One of, my, I mean, one of my favorite old movie scenes I haven't told you about in a while, from Rocky One. Remember where Rocky, Balboa, and Adrian are in the ice skating rink, and she's skating, and he's trying to walk around with her, and she's like, Rock, why are you doing it? Why are you going to get in the ring with the world champ and, and, and just let him beat your face in? And Rocky says that there's great words. He's like, God, if I can go 15 rounds with the world champ, then I know I'm not a bum. Or however, he, it sounded like something like that. I know I'm not a bum if I can go 15 rounds. Everybody in their life has something that is in the equivalent of those 15 rounds. Something that you feel like, if I do that, then I can escape my bumness. I got bumness, and if I can do that, if I can achieve that, if I can become that, if I can look like that, then I know I'm not a bum. Right? <laughs> I'm just trying to make it real, all right? So something that clothes your nakedness, and whatever that thing is, you become a slave to it. It drives you. It's like Bob Dylan says, 
You might be a rock and roll addict prancing on the stage. You might have drugs at your command, women in a cage. You may be a businessman or some high-degree thief. They may call you a doctor or they may call you a chief, but you're going to have to serve somebody. It might be the devil or it might be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Friends, when the apostle Paul and Bob Dylan agree on something, it is settled in heaven. Amen. <laughs> Amen. All right. Everybody serves something. You got to serve something. Well, the same thing is true when you turn to obedience to the law to try to save yourself. Rather than being clothed by the righteousness of Christ according to the promise of God, which would give you freedom, you try to clothe yourself through obedience to the law, and that makes you a slave to the law. And what that looks like is you get really technical and legalistic and judgmental about what it's got to look like and others who aren't doing it, or you become really paranoid about are you obeying it enough, and you become like Martin Luther, have I obeyed enough, did I go to church enough, or read my Bible enough, did I confess enough, and you're constantly paralyzed and enslaved by obedience to the law. Paul says, but now, now. Now, since you know God, by the way, he, he corrects himself. It's not like you even really knew God. You didn't do anything. You just became known by God. It was his power and his gift of righteousness. All you did was receive it. How could you turn back again, having experienced God and the promise to the weak and worthless elements? Why would you do that? You were created by God for God. And in the gospel, you found what you were looking for. You were reunited to him. You were clothed in his righteousness and filled with his power by him, by the gift of the promise. Do you really want to turn back again to yourself for clothing and acceptance? Verse 9, do you really want to be enslaved to those things all over again? God wants to make us into sons and daughters. And he does that only by the power of the Spirit. And the power of the Spirit is released only in our lives through faith in the gospel. The first time we believe the words, it is finished, we were released from the penalty of sin. It is as we continue to believe the words, it is finished again and again and again, that we are released from the power of sin. It is the words, it is finished, that change the heart of a slave into the heart of a son. And the reason some of you so struggle to obey God is that it is finished part of the gospel has never transformed you. It's become your forgiveness. It has not yet become your power for change. In the fourth grade, my mother commenced several years of rather cruel and unusual rigorous piano lessons in my life because she thought that it would add a lot of cultural richness to me. It was a desire and a vision that I did, I did not share. And so I dreaded that moment. I dreaded that moment in the afternoon because my mother it was nothing if not self-discipline when I would be out in the yard playing football or soccer or basketball and the door would open and JD, it's time to come in and practice your piano. And I was like, mom, could you at least come up with a code word for it? Don't tell all the kids in the neighborhood that I'm going to play the piano. Just come up with like it's time for your medicine or something, whatever. But, um, you know, so every day, four o'clock, I'd head in there and I'd always try to start at four, about 4.04 4 and round that back to four. And then I'd try to be done by 4.26 and round that down to 4.30, take at least seven or eight potty breaks in the middle of that half hour. So actual piano practicing time was about nine minutes. Uh, the worst for me was always the recital. I never really understood the recital because by the time the recital came around, my parents had heard me clunk out for Elise about 3,000 times. The only difference in hearing it this time is I was now dressed up in a bunch of uncomfortable clothes in a room full of total strangers waiting to humiliate myself. The only bright spot in the whole evening was the dim hope that somehow if I got through it, they might buy me a snow cone afterwards. Um, finally, in about the sixth grade, my mother released me from that tyranny of my piano lessons. And uh, I, it was a good riddance for me. It was in the rearview mirror. But then the strangest thing happened when I got to college. I started to really admire people who had musical talent. And I loved to hear them play, especially if they could play and they could lead in worship. 
And so I sat down and I tried to pick out a few of the tunes and I actually got pretty decent at playing a few songs. I think five of them was the total that were in my repertoire at one point. I could play five songs pretty well. Uh, well, me and my friend there in college had a deal worked out that whenever we were you know, somewhere and there was a piano and there were girls around, I would sit down and I'd play one of my five songs. And they'd be like, oh, you play the piano? And I would say, well, yes, I do. And uh, <laughs> I can play anything, just name a request. At that point, my friend on cue knew to jump in and say, oh, yeah, no, play uh, Faithfully by Journey. And so I'd sit down and I'd think that's the key of F and I would play that and they'd be like, oh, and they were so impressed and everything, or maybe they weren't, but at least I thought they were. Um, and and I, I really got into it. And so the strangest thing happened with that is I started to go back to my old piano training and all the things that I used to hate to do now I started to want to do them. I was like, let me try to learn to do those finger rolls and let me try to learn those chord charts and the very things that had once been a source of bondage to me now became a source of liberation of doing the thing that I now loved. Sadly, I never really went on. The reason for that, primary reason being that for all my desire, uh, truth be told, I have no musical skill at all. Uh, my fingers are like meat sausages, not really like delicate instruments to pluck out a nice tune. I have no rhythm. My wife says that when I dance, I look like someone on roller skates who's being attacked by a hive of yellow jackets. Uh, so uh, not, it's not in the cards for me. Um, Paul is saying that many of us, many of us view the commandments of God and fellowship with God like I used to view the piano. It's bondage. And that's because you don't love him. It's because you have the heart of a slave. God wants to give you the heart of a son. And that change can only happen, listen, through the gospel. Many of you cannot love God because you're trying to do so in the power of your flesh, which is bent in opposition against God. And nothing you can do can change that, no matter how sincere you get or how many resolutions you make or how much you come to church. And deep down, you only think of God as the judge who's going to punish you for doing what you really want to do. And that doesn't bring you closer to God like Martin Luther. It makes you hate him. And the more you are commanded to love him, the more you hate him and the more you resist him and you resent him. When my kids think that I'm mad at them, they avoid me. When my kids know that I love them and I cherish them, then they love to be around me. What if you saw, listen, what if you saw this weekend, what if you saw that even in your sin, God was not angry at you, but he was calling out to you like the father calling to the prodigal son saying, I see your messed up heart, I see it. And I see that you don't really desire me. And I see that you desire a hundred other things in front of me. And I see that deep down you hate my law. And I'm not telling you that you have to change that in order for me to accept you. I'm not telling you that you gotta try to pretend that you're somebody that you aren't because you can't do that. You can't change your heart. What I'm telling you is that if you'll come to me, I'll change your heart into that. I'll do it. All you have to do is submit to me and believe that I'll do it. And then I'll go to work on your heart. You see, the gospel is not change and I will accept you. The gospel is admit that you need to be changed and then submit to God and trust him to do it like he said he would and he will change you. He can give you the heart of a son who desires to be around and to be like their daddy. That's what God is calling out to many of you today. I know it's my voice and it's my words, but it's the Holy Spirit speaking to you. Listen to this. He is saying to you right now, I want to be your daddy. You don't have the heart of a son yet. I know that but I still wanna be your daddy and I can give you the heart of a son. Come to me and trust me for it and I'll give it to you. You don't have to do anything to earn my approval. I've given that as a gift in Christ, you just have to receive. You don't have to do anything in your own power to change your heart. That's something I'll do through the power of my spirit. 
when you trust in the finished work of Christ to change you? Have you been released from the law and begun to find salvation and growth in Christ through Christ? Because that's where it begins. In your sin, he's saying to you, I see how messed up you are. Yeah, you can't, I'm not telling you change and then I'll accept you. I'm telling you, just come to me as messed up as you are and say, I want you to change me and I want you to do it through a power that doesn't come from me. It's a power that comes from an empty tomb. Why don't you bow your head if you would. All of our campuses, bow your heads. Have you ever submitted to Jesus Christ? Some of you have never been able to do this because you've been waiting on your heart to start to love God. And you're like, when I love God, then I'll maybe be ready to be saved. My friend, you're never going to love God. It's not in you. It's something he's got to do in you. And you can do it by trusting in what Christ has done. Right now, you get to say, Jesus, I, I got a messed up heart. But I believe that you did everything necessary to save me. And I received that as my own. And I believe you can change even this sin, sick, tattered, diseased, dead heart. Change it through the power of the Spirit. Many of you prayed that with me just now for the first time, and you just became a real Christian. Some of you prayed it a while ago, but you've been since then trying to perfect yourselves through obedience and you've stopped looking at the power of Christ, the cross of Christ. You started to look to your old dead flesh as your means of sanctification. Right now you need to say, God, forgive me for my religiosity. God, the power to change comes from you and you alone who can change the leopard spots or melt the heart of stone, thy power and thine alone. Let me ask one more question to both groups. Have you publicly declared this dependence on Christ? Have you declared it through baptism? Baptism is the first and great statement and I believe it's finished. It releases unbelievable spiritual power into your life, the power of the Holy Spirit, because as you say in front of people, I confess Jesus is my salvation, Jesus is my resurrection, that he releases the power of the Spirit in you. And some of you have never done that. Quit making excuses. Stop talking about what happened when you were a baby. Stop talking about all the reasons that you're not ready yet. It is time for you to take that step and to declare it is finished. There were 115 last weekend. There are many more that have already happened this weekend, and today is your day. So in just a minute, I'm going to pray for you, and I'm going to do exactly what we did last week. We're going to stand at all of our campuses. We're going to have people that are going to be in the aisles, and they're going to, when you step out, they're going to take you, and they're going to go someplace quiet, and you guys are going to talk for a little bit, and whatever questions you have, they'll answer. And if you got, um, uh, if they have some questions, just want to make sure you're ready. And if you're ready, we will baptize you today, today. It's time to stop putting off to tomorrow what God has told you to do today. You know exactly who you are, and I'm going to pray for you, and I want you to pray while I pray that God will give you the courage to do what you know you need to do, because this is important. It's a life-defining moment. Father, I pray, I pray right now in Jesus' name that you would give those listening to me at all 11 of our campuses, give them the power and the ability to step out and to do what you've called them to do and to make this life-defining moment declaration of faith. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Everybody look up here at me. Here's what's going to happen in just a minute at all campuses, every service, every campus. We're going to stand up in just a minute. We're going to stand up and there'll be counselors all down the aisles at every campus, at every location. 
It's very easy. You just stand in one motion and then you step out into the aisle, whatever aisle is closest to you, and they'll find you. And they'll take you somewhere and they'll start this, this dialogue. You don't want to go alone? That's fine. I wouldn't want to go alone either if I were you. So grab the person next to you and just take them, okay? And you guys go together. All right? So we're going to do By the way, one more thing here. Um, this is not a great time to go to the bathroom. Um, because if you stand up and go to the bathroom, you very well might end up baptized. So I would just think carefully about what you're doing before you do it, okay? So when we stand up, just let's reserve this moment for those who are coming to be baptized, okay? We ready? When I count to three, we're all going to stand up at once, and then you that need to come, you stand and you step. Here we go. All campuses. One, and some church will do what we always do. We'll clap and we'll celebrate what's been happening. One, two, three. You stand. Let's put our hands together. Let's celebrate those who are coming right now. Right now to step out. That's it. Just go. Just go. Just go into the aisles. Someone will find you and they'll take you. Let's put our hands together.